everybody, it's your Tuesday Daily Delivery. I'm Michael Rand. Glad to have you guys back for another day. A um, lot to get to today. Going to kind of tie a little bit of a bow on the Vikings season. Andrew Kramer from the Star Tribune joins me in a little while for one final film review from Sunday's 31-24 loss to the Giants. Um, a lot to dissect from that game. Um, kind of a microcosm of the whole season to a certain degree in terms of defensive struggles and a few things on offense that that I didn't love in that game and just kind of the greater context of when you're talking about something that went wrong is it the players is it the scheme it's it's usually a little bit of both but what to what degree is it one or the other Andrew and I will try to get to that here in a little bit also Final installment of the year of My Least Favorite Team is My Favorite Team. Some Vikings poetry to help you process that loss on Sunday um, as only poetry can do that. Um, Get to the end here and uh, talk a little Tom Brady first, though. What I miss, I don't want to go too deep on the Wolves today because I think I've got some extended thoughts that I need to sort through that I will share on tomorrow's show. Suffice it to say... Um, just just dealing in the here and now, dealing with the facts of what happened on uh, on Monday, matinee at Target Center, uh, MLK Day. It's been they've, they've done a lot of those over the years. Play an early one with a lot of people having the day off. Um, so they play in Utah. They're on a nice little run. The Wolves are. They've won six out of seven. Um, even though they had that bad loss to Detroit. Um, and the other bad loss to Detroit before the win, before that you know good streak started, been playing better, got themselves back to 500, a chance to get over that hump, and you know playing a team with a certain amount of significance, right? This is the team, of course, that they made that massive off-season trade with the Rudy Gobert trade, where they dealt Walker Kessler, um, their first-round draft pick in this past draft. Four other first-round draft picks. I'm just saying this. I know you guys all know what the, what the haul was, but sometimes saying it out loud helps us fully understand what it really was. So Walker Kessler, four other first-round draft picks, 2023, 25, 27, and 29. Jared Vanderbilt, Patrick Beverly, um, Malik Beasley, and Leandro, Leandro Bomaro. So much given up. Now, at the time, we looked at it and said, okay, Yes, they gave up a lot, but you know it was a lot of little pieces, right? In, in if you looked at it the right way, um, you looked at it and said, "Hey, we don't know what Walker Kessler's going to be. He's a low first round draft pick. Maybe he's a, a serviceable backup big man. The other guys were useful, important players on last year's team. But if you got a, a team that you think has a championship ceiling, are these guys really?" a part of it necessarily. And the draft picks, you could say, well, if you really think that Rudy Gobert is the missing piece of the puzzle, those draft picks shouldn't be that good. They should be in the high teens or 20s, um, ideally the 20s, because it means you're making the playoffs and making a playoff run every year. So I got the logic of it. And you looked at what the Wolves lacked last year, and it was rebounding to a large degree. Gobert, great defensive player, very good defensive rebounder over the years, just tall, occupies a lot of space, good with the lob game. You could see, if you looked at it a certain way, how it fit. However, it has not gone so great so far. And again, I'll get into a little bit more of the of the big picture of that, I think, on tomorrow's show. In the here and now, Walker Kessler goes for a 2020 game 
on uh, on Monday. 20 points, 21 rebounds in the game. Gobert exits for the second game in a row with a groin strain. Um, Malik Beasley makes the go-ahead three-pointer late in the game. Jared Vanderbilt does a bunch of hustle things, as he usually does. And then there's still those four first-round picks looming out there. Um, you know, and I, I think... I think those will be those those hurt, but they don't hurt as much as people think because even if even if this doesn't turn out to be what you hoped it would be in terms of championship aspirations, um, I don't imagine those will ever be high high lottery picks. That, that's just my that's my my that's my sense at this point. But as long as you have Anthony Edwards, as long as you still have Rudy Gobert, let's be honest, he's still a good functional, you know, strong defensive player. Whatever Carl Anthony Towns can give you when he comes back, or whatever he might give you uh, if you decide he's not the right fit in this overall scheme um, in a year or two, whatever he might fetch in a trade, um, all of those things will add up to at least um, a decent team. We're going to get to, the, like I said, we'll get more into that in in the next one. The, Walker Kessler's kind of the wild card here because he plays the same position as Gobert a shot blocker, a rebounder, and he's having a very good rookie season. Again, he probably took advantage of Towns and then mostly Gobert being out in Monday's game. But to put up a 20-20 game in a game in which Utah wins by a point, stops the Wolves' winning streak, puts the Wolves back under 500. The Jazz have been pretty close to the Wolves all season long, even in a season where they were supposed to be rebuilding after trading away Gobert and Donovan Mitchell. That hurts. That makes you think, wow, even in the, even if it was just a one-for-one one move, wh- who would you rather have right now? And I know it's, 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 it's absurd, right? We're, we're te- we're, it's a very micro take right now, and I'm having a more macro take on, uh, on Wednesday's show. But just looking at it right now, in the here and now, that was not a great look, uh, bottom line, on, on Monday. And, uh, and again, just one game, but that was, uh, that was about as bad as it can get. Some Wolves fans saying that was a top 10 loss in terms of how much it hurt and what it might mean for the future. We'll see about that, um, but right now, like I said, not the greatest game for the Wolves in a, in, a, in a franchise history that has had its share of those. Take a playcation to Mystic Lake. With 24-7 gaming, the good times never have to end. And you can satisfy your cravings at our restaurants and bars. Or relax in one of our luxurious hotel rooms. Those that play together, stay together. And don't forget to join Club M so you can spark new memories and bask in the rewards along the way. Follow the lights to Mystic Lake, where every day is play day. I really hope you guys aren't sick of Vikings talk yet because we got some more right now with Andrew Kramer. Covers the Vikings for the Star Tribune. Probably be our last Vikings segment for a little while at least until uh, we get some clarity maybe on defensive coordinator um, <clears throat> going forward. But uh, Andrew uh, is going to help us break down the film of uh, of that Giants game, 31-24 loss. Andrew, I want to use this moment as kind of an umbrella discussion of players versus scheme, both offense and defense. I think there's some really interesting moments from the Giants game that can get us to a good discussion of that. I want to talk about that fourth and eight play. Uh, it's been a lot of talk about that with Cousins throwing to TJ Hawkinson to let their last offensive play, as it turned out, of the season. Um, but first, we need to talk about the the defense. And just as you think about, you know, 18 games, the, the bigger picture, and specifically Sunday, a lot of the same players from last year, a lot of them asked to do new things this year, a new scheme 
They're all a lot of, you know, they're all a year older. We're all a year older. Um, as you think about their defensive woes, 400 yards again, uh, given up to the Giants, 31 points. Is this more a matter of personnel or is this more a matter of the scheme that Ed Donatel was running and how he wanted them to, to, to function in that defense? Yeah, I think I think it's both. I think their issues are both because Ed Donatel is clearly not the only problem. Um, the Vikings defensive ranks the last three years, 27th in yardage in 2020, 30th in 2021 and 31st this year. They continue to regress with the age of these defenders, their core Kendricks, Harrison Smith, Daniel Hunter, um, obviously Hunter being hurt for two of those three years. But um the, the scheme is obviously aided in that regression, right? They it's, it's been picked apart and toyed with. And Brian Dable did that uh, in Sunday's game. I thought Brian Dable and Daniel Jones had an excellent game plan and execution of it. Whereas Ed Donatel reverted to what he had done for much of the season that had gotten the Vikings in hot water. He kept them on their heels. He didn't blitz Daniel Jones. He didn't really try to force the issue like he did on Christmas Eve when he was kind of under the gun there. After that Lions loss, they go against the Colts, they go against the Giants. Ed Dontel starts blitzing more, sending more pressures because uh, Kevin O'Connell's saying, we need to change. We need to do things differently. And then I thought, well, you're going to continue that in the playoffs. And they didn't. And, yeah. and they blitzed Daniel Jones just six times on his dropbacks. Um, he ended up carving them up anyway when they did blitz. He was four of five for 40 yards and a touchdown and a sack against those pressures um it, it just nothing worked and and when the vikings blitzed daniel jones was quick to throw and when they sent four he was quick to run he scrambled six times picked up a bunch of first downs so in terms of what's more of the issue i think they need to change all of it yeah <laughs> they need to tweak things everywhere but um the scheme needs to be adjusted. It just, it didn't fit the personnel they had. Uh, Eric Hendricks looked uncomfortable, especially on Sunday. Harrison Smith looked uncomfortable at times and did not have a good game. Um, they need to put those veterans in better spots. Well, yeah. And it seems like, you know, you can be bad in multiple ways. You can give up, you know, huge chunk plays. And they did plenty of that this year, but there was a lot of that in the last two years as well when they were playing under Zimmer's defense, which was certainly more aggressive than this year's defense. I, I feel like if you're going to get beat, I feel like if you're going to, if you're getting beat in a way that's more passive, you're going to lose buy-in from, from players faster. It's, it's, I guess the, that's the long way of saying it's got to be hard for a player to play in a defense that maybe they don't necessarily believe in or that they're, they're giving up tons of yards and they're not allowed to be aggressive. It kind of goes, it runs counter to, what O'Connell says about his offense, he wants Kirk Cousins to play free. He wants him to play, you know, with pace. I don't feel like the defense is allowed to play with pace if they're constantly kind of thinking about assignments and trying to be in the right place instead of making kind of reactions and aggressive plays in this in this in that kind of scheme. Well, and I think their weaknesses have kind of the, the defensive weaknesses have compounded on top of each other this season, where through much of the beginning of the year, they had issues covering in the slot with Shannon Sullivan. They had issues at the outside corner with Cam Dancer struggling. Then it was a rookie and a Caleb Evans. Then it was another rookie and Andrew Booth. And then it was Duke Shelley. And so they had all these issues, right? And then so that leaned into Donatel playing much more coverage and trying to play safer coverage and giving up so much underneath and not sending these extra pressures. Well, then Jared Goff doesn't get touched in that loss in Detroit. So they start sending more pressures. Uh, but then they still bust coverages. 
And then it seemed like he was playing coaching tight and, and wanting to not give up big plays to a Giants team that had thrown for 334 yards against them in that Christmas Eve game. Um, it just it did seem like Donatel regressed in terms of the adjustments he had been making. Um, and the defenders themselves, I mean, when I talk about the scheme being toyed with, they start out in nickel, right? Donatel likes to play a lot of five defensive backs. He likes to play a lot of defend, defensive backs and a lot of guys in coverage. And what you need then, though, is guys that can tackle and support against the run. The first play of the Giants had was a 13-yard run by Saquon Barkley to the edge. It was called back because of the holding, but that play was really important because it confirmed to the Giants coaching staff what they already knew probably was that we could run on the outside with against Shannon Sullivan, against Patrick Peterson, against Duke Shelley. So then the Vikings started going base. They started keeping um, three defensive linemen on the interior, their edge guys wide. And so then the Giants said, okay, now we'll throw against that. Right. When you're having to drop Daniel Hunter against Saquon Barkley, or in one case, Daniel Jones sees that Daniel Hunter's dropping in the coverage, and he decides, I'm just going to outrun Dalvin Tomlinson to the edge. <laughs> in one of those second half moments and everyone's thinking, well, how is Dalvin Tomlinson, the guy chasing Daniel Jones? It's because they've schemed Daniel Hunter into coverage because the Vikings had to go wide and base to try and stop the run because they can't stop the run in nickel because they don't have good corners. So the corner problem just, it, it tr kind of permeates throughout the defense and leads to all these issues that if you could stop the run in nickel, like at Donatel Chicago bears defenses have done in the past, uh, Broncos defenses have done other places he's done has succeeded with this scheme in part because they had personnel that matched it and they were just fitting square pegs in a round hole which is part of the frustration of this season right I mean I, I get that O'Connell is a fan of the three four they they ran it in in with the Rams and he has the defense he wanted to run but if it doesn't match your personnel right away do you is that the time to make that kind of wholesale change or do you have to wait until you get the personnel you want to do that? And again, I get it. They weren't that great in the four three last year either. And some of that was injury, but some of that was just, these guys are getting older. They're getting work. They're getting out schemed. They're getting out, just out co competed. They're not just not the athletes they used to be, but it, it felt from the beginning, like you said, like it was a problem of fit in a lot of cases. Like Eric Kendricks is not a good fit for a three, four scheme. Daniel Hunter, there's going to be questions about that because he'd never really played it. Maybe Zadario Smith was a better fit because he's done it before, but a lot of these guys in the scheme just did not feel like natural fits for a three, four in that front seven. Yeah, I do think, I think what might end up being a fireable offense for Donatello, or at least losing play calling duties or whatever adjustment they make in terms of coaching uh, might be that they haven't made more of those wholesale adjustments. Cause you saw it work against the Colts. Um, the defense was not the reason they went down 33, nothing in that game. Um, you saw it work in, in spurts and work enough against the Giants to force two turnovers uh, in that win later in the season. Uh, and then the Packers game, it just it went completely awry and they had no answers. So you've seen them make certain adjustments that did work, but not the kind of massive changes that I've seen other coaches make. Like when I watch the Chargers and I watch Brandon Staley, I've mentioned this before because you watch the, the Dolphins game that they played. They played aggressive press man-to-man -man coverage. It was a complete yeah. wholesale scheme change from what you're used to seeing from them and stuff that you just don't see from Ed Donatel and you haven't seen from this staff. Now, that doesn't excuse the fact that Eric Hendricks looked really bad in that game. It doesn't excuse the fact that Harrison Smith tripped and fell over on a 47-yard play uh, that was uh, made by his guy. Um, th these veterans played very poorly on top of 
you know, right. the scheme getting out coached. So they've got a lot of issues and, and it, they're going to have to find ways to address many of them this off season. Well, let's switch to the offense because I feel like I, that was certainly the better side of the ball this season. That's where, you know, some of their younger, more explosive playmakers are, of course, including Justin Jefferson and TJ Hawkinson at this point as well. Um, Jefferson held down in large part in this game, just seven catches for 47 yards, only one for four yards after halftime. Um, so for thinking about that, I, w- I want to focus on the very last play, that fourth and eight. There's been a lot of good breakdowns. I think both you and I have watched the Kurt Warner breakdown of that play where he had some pretty specific critiques that I want to run through that I thought were interesting. But I think I feel like that play perfectly illustrates some of the shortcomings that the offense still has. And maybe we can kind of get to those as we kind of go through the progression of the play, but the offensive line has deficiencies that impacts what TJ Hawkinson does. You know, Justin Jefferson maybe doesn't have enough help still around him with his other playmakers. And Kirk Cousins has some tendencies, maybe in big moments still, to uh, to look a certain way or to, you know, to take to take something that's at least going to give a team a chance, but maybe not taking a risk in that case where you're at least giving yourself maybe a, a chance to throw the ball past the sticks. So what did you see in that, in that final play? And in part of it's the play calling too. I don't think that was a great play call. Yeah, you're, you're right. And Kurt Warner did do a great job he, on his Twitter account. He's got a video um, where you guys can see it's, it's like a six, seven minute breakdown of it, but it really points out some of the shortcomings of the, the play call and the option that they went to at fourth and eight. Remember, remember they did not have a timeout going into that to discuss it. They ended up having to run that after an incompletion, getting a full huddle, um, but deciding to send three receivers past the the sticks on vertical routes, and they weren't quick vertical routes. Justin Jefferson was isoed on one side of the field, ends up running a corner route, getting double covered on the short side. That's an easy no for Cousins. And then he never really gets time to even look left or doesn't look left to look at um, Adam Thielen running an also long developing kind of corner route. And then KJ Osborne kind of switch releasing and coming in on the inside and running what seems to be a post route, not quite a full crossing or in route, um, but not the easiest kind of reads. Kurt Warner talks about how if KJ Osborne's running more of a over and kind of a in route that gives Kirk an easier window to throw into. Um, Also the protection up the middle was, such that you're getting pressure right away from the left guard. TJ Hawkinson is chipping uh, the the and helping the right tackle, Oli Udo, um, who's the replacement right tackle. And Kurt Warner's saying, if my tight end's chipping and running a choice route, I shouldn't even be considering him as an option. And TJ's remarks after the game, when I asked him if, if he was expecting that pass, he said, I'm not going to get into that. Uh, obviously, he was not. <laughs> so um, I do think um, it was a bad, bad design when you look at it. And one where uh, Kirk Cousins, as Kurt Warner said, did not have many great options. He, he didn't. And it, I think it starts with the the concept because it felt like as you watch the routes over again, it, it feels like it was more of like a fourth and 15. The, 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 the verticals were pretty deep. And long developing, like you said, it would require the offensive line to be better than it had been in most of that game. Now, maybe something with something a little bit quicker with some, you know, some crossers or, you know, some, some, you know, 10, 11 yard, you know, in something like that might've been, might've given cousins a little bit more of an opportunity to pick a guy and just unload it and and let the chips fall or they may a couple other good points that, that Warner made, you know, one, 
Jefferson singled, or he's he's the he's the single receiver on the right side, which means he's automatically going to get doubled. And he probably would have anyway because they were they were bracketing him for most of that game. It seemed like, especially when they were shutting him down. But if you put him on the side with two receivers, if you put him in the slot, as Warner suggested, maybe he's got a little bit of a better chance to break free. Kind of in the maybe in the route that Kate like the like the route that KJ Osborne ended up running that you know if if Cousins is looking at that route the whole way he probably throws it he's never looking left at all in this case because maybe he's locked in early on hey I should probably throw this to Jefferson but then he sees hey Jefferson's doubled there's not really much there Hawkinson's the other guy over there um, if Hawkinson doesn't have to chip maybe Hawkins maybe Hawkinson's route is a little bit deeper maybe he can get down the field a little bit maybe that's more of an option at that point. Um, but then you're getting, you're talking about guys like Thielen and, um, Thielen and KJ Osborne who are capable receivers. You know, Thielen still had a lot of catches this year. He made a couple plays the other day, but not the kind of game breakers. It did, it did feel all year. Like they were, if not a full wide receiver short, like it was almost like they had a one and two threes and it, and maybe that's too dismissive of Thielen at this point in his career, but it kind of felt like that. And they were, they could really use someone else to take a little bit of that pressure at wide receiver off of Jefferson. And it's don't, I don't know if that play call was necessarily reflective of just how little they have to work with there other than Jefferson. And, you know, maybe ideally, like we talked about before we started recording, they could have called timeout, got, you know, the absolute play they wanted, but, you know, O'Connell's calling this in real time. He's got to have a fourth and eight play ready. Just didn't feel like that was maybe the best play call in a, in a game where he had a few suspect moments. Yeah, your point about needing another secondary option, like TJ's been that guy, right? But in this offense, and Kevin O'Connell's offense, the tight end is going to play that true hybrid hybrid role. They will move him out wide, play him as a wide receiver kind of, but he's going to have to be asked to block. And when you've got a backup right tackle, that's what happens. It essentially takes away your number two option as a vertical route because you're asking him to then stick to the line and block. And because if you moved him out, your only other option to help chip or block is Dalvin Cook. So you decide right there with the play structure and design that it's got to be the tight end. And then to your point, they don't have another number two outside of Justin Jefferson with that. Adam Thielen has not been it. His regression has been uh, precipitous this year in terms of uh, his ability to create and be a playmaker for them. And KJ Osborne, he's just limited physically in who he is. And I think he's always going to be a solid number three wide receiver, but not a guy that you should always necessarily bank on uh, to win on one-on-one against aggressive man coverage on fourth down. So, or if you are, you've got to help them out more from a coaching perspective. And we talked a little bit about this too. This is a 37-year-old rookie head coach coaching as a head coach in his first NFL playoff game. Obviously, they went to the Super Bowl last year with the Rams, but you do wonder how much growing pains you're seeing from Kevin O'Connell um, in in just terms of managing these games, calling these games in these critical moments, which we should know that they did very well in uh, going 11 and one this year in these one score games. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think this play just illustrates if he's self scouting this offseason, which it sounds like he is, and they're going to take a very hard look at the defense, very hard look at the special teams. That's kind of the microcosm of what needs to get better on the offense. It was all those little things happening in one play. It was the offensive line that was still a problem in a lot of cases in this game. And some of it is Brian O'Neill was hurt, but some of it was that Garrett Bradbury got pushed around again. Um, the the interior of the line didn't hold up great in a lot of cases. Um, some of it is 
the byproduct of that, then then Hawkinson has to chip and he's not going to be available. Part of it is maybe the play call, the play design. That's not ideal for a fourth and eight felt like more of a fourth and 13, fourth and 15 column. Part of it's the personnel. So it's a lot of those little things. If you upgrade a little bit in all of those areas, if the play calls better, if the offensive line is a little bit better, if the personnel is a little bit better, maybe the outcome of that play is different. The question is, are they going to be in this position again next year? Because they won so many one score games this year. It's, you know, you only get those chances so many times, even if you get better next year in this area, does not guarantee you're going to get back to this moment again. Yeah. Now it's, it's Quase Adolfo Mensa season now. And, and yes. I will say, I know they picked up some draft picks in that deal, but Jamison Williams at 12 overall would have looked pretty nice in yes. this offense. Yes, he would. And they only have four draft picks uh, in this 2023 draft, a one, a three, a four, and a five. So help uh, will be, uh, you're going to have to hit on a lot of those or do some trading down to accumulate more picks, but uh, it's going to be a difficult uh, task to do a whole lot of upgrading with the cap space they have and the draft capital they have in 2023. It's either going to have to be kind of improvement from within, really hitting on some of these things, or it's going to be a pretty significant kind of step back in the building process before things get better again. I do wonder, too, and we'll have a lot of time to talk about this, but speaking of Sunday's game and these decisions, Eric Hendricks is like right there in in terms of those financial crosshairs of a guy who's not played that well as aging, wrong side of 30, and has um, a cap hit that is very cuttable uh, in terms of just his contract and the financial movering. So I, I do wonder if uh, they might get him to take a pay cut or if, if we've seen kind of the last of Eric Hendricks in Minnesota. Yes, that's a good question. A lot of good questions to sort out. We'll talk about that more for sure on Access Vikings and other shows going forward. Andrew Kramer, appreciate it all season, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Sounds good, Mike. Thanks. Good stuff from Andrew. As always, I appreciated him all year coming on and doing these film reviews on Tuesday. That last play is just kind of sticking with me, kind of sticking in my craw. A lot of things, there's kind of a microcosm like I talked to Andrew about of a lot of the different deficiencies the Vikings might have right now, right? The offensive line didn't protect Cousins. Cousins wasn't maybe looking where he should have been looking on that play. The play design uh, left a lot to be desired. I think it just was there was too many guys running too far down the field. Felt like you were trying to get 15 yards, not eight. I, I just would not have called that play at that moment. Didn't like the way the fl- the field was spaced. Didn't like that Jefferson and Hawkinson were on the same side, especially if Hawkinson wasn't going to be a you know primary or secondary target and didn't love that you know nobody really got a whole lot of separation uh between Thielen, Hawkinson and uh and KJ Osborne. So a lot a lot to dissect from that play and a lot to think about going into the offseason and how the Vikings can improve not just on defense but on offense as well. Well we've come to the inevitable end of the Vikings seasons for sixty plus years. It has ended short of the ultimate goal of winning a Super Bowl. And that's why this segment is aptly titled My Least Favorite Team is My Favorite Team. Keith Rashad joins me every week during the Viking season, but this will be the last time for at least a while, I would imagine, that we talk about a Vikings game because, Keith, I don't know if you noticed, they lost on Sunday 31-24 to the Giants. I don't, did you notice that? 
Well, it's 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 hard for me to believe that uh, we're not going to continue your your least popular segment on your podcast for weeks on end. But uh, yeah, this is this. I did notice that they lost. I did. I did see that. Yes. It would be kind of weird if we tried to do haikus about games that weren't happening. But, you know, we could try it. It would, it would be a stretch. But and you're wrong. It's not the least popular segment on the show. That's uh, that's reserved for something else. I don't even know what it is, but it's not this segment. That's for sure. Um, haiku talking number one. to you, Andrew Kramer. Haiku number one, please. All right. Season-long debates. Whether the Vikings are frauds. The defense sure was. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what else to say. Um, I've I've said a lot about the defense already on various shows already, but it was... uh, it kind of was what we thought it was, right? They kept talking about how maybe they'll get better, maybe they'll get better. Uh, spoiler alert, did not get better and cost them kind of in the way we imagined it would. Um, you know, I, I just think the the disappointing part, I guess, is that, you know, you didn't imagine they would have much of a chance if they got past this game of beating San Francisco because San Francisco is just on such a roll, such so many different offensive things they can do and the Vikings would have no chance of stopping that. But to do to to not be able to stop the Giants was disappointing. Well, let me just give you haiku number two because I think it leads sort of in the same direction, but maybe a slightly different angle here. Let's let's go that way then, yes. All right. <clears throat> Older Vikings fans, do you hate Bob Schnelker more or Ed Donatel? Yeah, I was a uh... Uh, Clarence, uh, our friend Chicken Finger sixty nine, had a tweet that was basically talking about the the uh, the worst, uh, you know, the worst of the uh, um, co- coordinators and such. And it was, uh, yeah, it was uh, him and I think Dick Such were like the all time uh, the, the all time worst of the uh, you know, Schnelker, Dick Such, and now Ed Donatel. I don't know who else you'd put in that. Uh, in that category, but the, the maligned position coaches or, you know, coordinators, Ed Donatello is certainly up there. I, you have to be a Vikings fan of a certain age, but the hate that there was for Bob Schnelker. And of course the kids out there can uh, look up the YouTube, Jerry Burns defending oh, yeah. uh, Bob Schnelker. Don't do it at work. Right. Sometimes Don't I use, a... sometimes I use the clean part of, of that on the show. Even the, uh, oh, that is well. Schnelker's fault. Well, that's, it's a perfect insert for right here. Uh, AC out there in the flat. There's a ball thrown in there low. That, that isn't Snelker's fault. Okay. So, uh, but if you are of a certain age, you remember just how deeply hated Bob Schnelker was. And he stuck around longer than I assume Ed Donatel will be sticking around. Ah, uh, yes. I, I don't think that's a long-term relationship. So there was the opportunity to build up uh, years of despise yes. for Schnelker. Uh, that's probably not going to happen in this situation. But in terms of the voluminous disdain yes. for both, it, it's it's hard for me to say Schnelker is going to be a longer period of time, but yes. who has the higher peak in terms yeah. of just disdain? Well, yeah, I mean, in the Burnsy clip was that was after the seven field goal, one safety win over the I think it was the Rams, maybe that they beat. I don't, I can't remember exactly who they beat, but they won twenty three twenty one. Had to kick seven field goals in regulation, and then they got the safety in overtime to 
to win it. Um, but Kevin O'Connell had plenty of chances throughout the season and particularly Sunday after the game is over to say uh, that isn't Schnelker's fault or that isn't uh, Donatel's fault. He did not uh, use those words or anything close to it. Uh, he didn't specifically blame Ed Donatel, but he did not uh, specifically defend Ed Donatel either. So you can kind of well, maybe read into that what you will. Yeah, a couple of things. First of all, we all know he's getting fired. Uh, you know, they'll probably wait the obligatory three, four days, week or whatever, so that it doesn't look reactionary and terrible and what have you, right? It's, he's been around long enough. I guess he deserves that level of respect, but he's getting canned. <laughs> there's there's, there's no doubt about it. Uh, but there, there were individual players on the defense who seemed to have decent seasons, right? Yep. And nobody had, I, I think, a great season on that side of the ball, right? The pass rush was a little hit and miss. Yeah. The defensive backs were a little hit and miss. You would occasionally see a linebacker make a play. So there, you couldn't point to one specific player. At least I can't point to one specific right. player or two or three players and say they were the ones who really cost this team. So it at least implies that a big part of the problem was the way that these players who were having at least average to decent years were being deployed. And you kind of get it, right? Because O'Connell was hired somewhat late. The Whatever talent pool that was out there was depleted. Uh, Donatel is a seasoned yeah, defensive coordinator. He was like the... He's like the Norv Turner of defensive coordinators, which is what Zimmer did when he got hired as a head coach too. Right. So you can see a logic to his hiring before the season. There weren't a lot of options out there. He was the best of whatever was left. But now that they're in a different position and they might have more talent available to them to look at for that position, they can maybe do a more thorough job than they were able to when last year things kind of lingered a little later than they typically do in the hiring cycle. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think your assessment of the defense was correct in that yeah, it didn't seem like one player was just like egregiously bad. I think you're right. The pass rush was better at the beginning of the year. And who knows to the extent at which... Zadarius Smith's injury, you know, he played through it, but he was clearly not as impactful the second half of the year. I think he had eight and a half sacks in the first seven games and maybe one, one and a half in the last 10. So clearly three. Yeah. Clearly that was not good. I mean, Daniel Hunter had his moments. He had a couple plays in Sunday's game. I think he had a sack of Daniel Jones in that game, but he was like kind of hit or miss. So you're right. It wasn't like one one person, one player, one even part of the deer defense layer of the defense was exactly the problem. It was it was a lot of different things. It was it was a lack of talent or lack of you know some some aging catching up to them. But I think you're right. The scheme itself was not great. I don't think the players I think the players lost a little bit of faith in the scheme at a certain point. And when that happens and you combine it with a not so great scheme in the first place, you're gonna have some problems. Anyway, haiku number three. Yeah. Yes. Every narrative about Kirk was reconfirmed with a single pass. Was it though? I mean, it, it, it I don't know. I go back and forth on that play. I know I'm, I'm sure you're talking about the fourth and eight play. I want to hear your take on it. Cause I've talked about it a lot already with Andrew on this show. Well, so in terms of good or bad or what have you, you know, I don't know. I'm not breaking down the film. I watched it once. I was so disgusted that was the end of it, right? I didn't, I did not uh, 
Kurt Warner that one and right. and X and O it right. But Kurt Warner, but, yes. But the it fits so unfortunately and easily into a narrative about a guy who just doesn't have that extra level that you want out of a quarterback getting paid four bajillion dollars right to try to lead your team. How in the world it's fourth down? Yeah. It doesn't matter if you throw an interception. It doesn't matter if if the ball ends up bouncing off the turf. It's just got to get past that first down marker, right? You have one chance to to push the ball up the field for with a season on the line in a playoff game. How in the world do you end up throwing five yards short of where it is that you need to be? And <sighs> It just feels like there was a progression in his mind. He went through the progression and he did what was what was automatic, computer-like. Yeah. He right? always talks about he goes where the reads take him, and that's what that's, I think that's what you're describing. And that is not the time to do that. That Correct. is the time to throw it to Justin Jefferson or to the person who's benefiting from the fact that they're putting three guys on Justin Jefferson, yeah. as long as it's past the first down mark. And this just feeds into the narrative about him not being able to take that extra step. And we've seen mediocre quarterbacks win the Super Bowl when everything goes perfectly for them. But with right. the way that his salary cripples their cap situation and the fact that he doesn't seem to be able to do that, even though he's had success this year, is only going to help foster this narrative uh, and build upon what so many of us think about him, regardless of the success that he had this year. Yeah, I think there's, I think there's definitely some nuance to the play, but when you get down to the moment, it's binary. Either you, either you make the throw and try, or you do what he did, which was kind of an opportunity but the the egregious part about it and again he's under duress there's a lot of things going on in in a very short amount of time the offensive line didn't do him a lot of favors in that moment or in that game but if if your decision at that point is just get the ball out and see if tj hawkinson can make a play hawkinson was well covered like i i take my chances at that point with if, if you're locked on to justin jefferson which it sure seemed like he was at the beginning of that read because his progression took him from Jefferson to Hawkinson on that side of the field. And Hawkinson wasn't really a choice to begin with on that play based on what his assignment was. Um, you, you've made the wrong choice. You you had to have been, you had to have had a different process going into that play where if Jefferson is covered, then let then like you said, you're immediately looking to the other side of the field where you've got KJ Osborne and Adam Thielen benefiting from that double coverage. And maybe one of them, gives you a better chance than a double cover Justin Jefferson, or maybe you just throw it to Justin Jefferson because he made one of the craziest catches in the history of football and he hasn't been targeted in the fourth quarter. And maybe that's your best chance. Even if it doesn't seem like your best chance, you got one play left in your season. Yeah. Potentially one play left in your season, throw it beyond the sticks. Yeah. You can't check it down to TJ Hawkins. I guess that is a binary. Yes, I agree. I agree with that. And I, I do wonder, I mean, I don't think one play will ever define, you know, his legacy or his relationship with Kevin O'Connell. Nope, but that's I do where you're wrong. That was the play. <laughs> I do wonder if that will stick with O'Connell as he kind of goes through his process of 
this is what I want in a quarterback. Cousins does a lot of things that he, I'm sure he likes. He gave him some freedom in this offense that he hasn't had before. But ultimately, I think O'Connell would want a different type of quarterback. And so I don't think this is going to be a long, long-term solution. I, I, would, I wouldn't be surprised if Cousins was still here next season, but I have a hard time imagining any sort of another extension for Kirk Cousins in this, just based on a lot of what we saw this year, but especially that play. That play will stick with Kevin O'Connell, I think. Well, can we also talk just a little bit about how O'Connell had a tendency, particularly in the second half of the year, getting a little too cute? Yes. Right? Oh, we, yes, he absolutely now, did. One third down where the, the trick play where yeah, they trying to throw it back to. I mean, it would seem to me that it, football, I guess, is wildly complicated and you got 22 people all running around. I get it. You know, there's a lot going on there. Yeah. But it would seem to me that you would have some very specific strengths that you would want to rely on in the most important times of the game. Yes. And some of that cute stuff, right? You know, it's fine when it works, but relying on, on trickeration and gadgetry yeah. and all this kind of stuff just gets real frustrating when you treat that as the strength of your team instead of the best wide receiver yes. in the game and so on and so forth. So it's just like he has got some learning to do, it would seem, as well, too. Yes. The two defining plays on offense in that game were a play where Justin Jefferson threw the ball and a play where Justin Jefferson did not get the ball thrown to him. Right. Right. Okay. Paiku 4, please. Okay. Just one thing to say. The Minnesota Vikings. <laughs> I was wondering if I would get to use the beat button because it beat, was the beat, end of the season. What? Wait, wait, no, that was five I, syllables. Yeah, I, I, that was five syllables. Very, I'm Why very, are you beeping that? It's a tough sensor. It's a tough sensor, but I got, I got to beep that one out. Oh, well, okay. All right. I just can't wait until the next time you get on your high horse about the First Amendment. All right. Yeah. Let's do some free speech here. All right. I don't think you, I think you do know what free speech is. I think you do know what the First Amendment is, but I don't think you're correctly applying it to this podcast. That <laughs> Um, maybe. And again, we'll see what next year brings. Uh, it feels like this is going to be the true rebuild coming up, that this season was a surprise, um, that the success they had told us a lot about Kevin O'Connell, a lot of good things about Kevin O'Connell, but that what they did this year is not, not you can't replicate that. You, you cannot expect to win 11 one-score games every season, that they're going to have to improve in a lot of areas, and that to do that, they're probably going to have to take a step or two back before they can really become the team they want to become. Speaking of old, slow, taking a step back, I think we've seen the end of Tom Brady, at least in Tampa Bay. That was not a great performance by him. 31-14, Dallas knocks off Tampa Bay easily in uh, the final of the wild card games of the weekend, Monday Night Football. Brady didn't get much going until it was way too late. Dallas took a 24-0 lead. Um, you might think that that was three touchdowns and a field goal, folks. It was not. It was four touchdowns and four missed extra points by Brett Maher. That was amazing that he could not make an extra point until the very end of the game on that fifth touchdown. <clears throat> but that was kind of a sideshow. The Brady, the Brady angle and the dominance of Tampa Bay were the real stories of that game. 
And Brady afterwards sure sounding like a guy whose time in Tampa Bay is over. Won a Super Bowl there, of course, after leaving New England. Maybe still something left in the tank at age 45, but I got to believe that at some point he needs to hang it up. I mean, my goodness, this has been going on for a long time. He still played at a high level at a lot of different points, but this has to end at a certain point, and I think at least it's over in Tampa Bay. And speaking of over, that'll do it for today. Kind of went long today. Um, Try to respect your time, but uh, the internet has infinite amounts of space, so hope you appreciated today's show and all the content. Back at it again on Wednesday, expecting to have Chip Scoggins on, Star Tribune columnist, to talk about a little bit of everything all of the time, and uh, we'll see you then.